I appreciate that song because it really leads us to what next Sunday night is all about with our sacred assembly, is knowing God more and surrendering. But I can't help notice that it's Super Bowl Sunday. And forget the colors of the Patriots. Forget the colors, I know this is gonna be hard, of the Eagles. 60-some thousand seats in the, metro, in, the, in the dome are purple. <laughs> it doesn't mean squat, but it comforts my heart. <laughs> And every now and then I notice when they show on the inside the Minneapolis Stadium, they have not covered up all the precious Vikings heads. There's still, there's still an acknowledgement that the Vikings do exist. They got whooped terribly last week, two weeks ago, but enough of that. Well, we're continuing our preparation for a sacred assembly, which will be held next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. We're now in our 34th day of fasting and prayer. We're continuing our countdown seven days now to our sacred assembly, when we will formally repent of our corporate sin, confess the failures of our church, and commit to renew anew, return anew to God and his purposes. Again, Joel 1.14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And that's what we intend to do. Whereas the sacred assembly by nature is a corporate confession of sin, there are personal preparations that need to be made, and we've been reminding ourselves of that these past weeks, and offering forgiveness leading to reconciliation, Paul brought up in his prayer between brothers and sisters in Jesus. We've concentrated each week in this preparation, uh, at least looking at Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, therefore we are, as we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us, and I've inserted individually and corporately, whereas the intention of the sacred assembly is primarily corporate, there is going to be a chance given at the conclusion for a congregational response, which really has to do with individual reconciliation, confession and repentance of sin as God reveals it to us. We are to strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And we saw these past weeks that the scripture exhorted us to examine ourselves individually, as I said, and corporately to see if our faith is genuine, and we, we encourage spiritual examination so for two Sundays, we examined our attitudes and actions, and we examined our heart and speech. And we won't go through all of those this morning, but we spent some time looking at each of them. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. We, we took note that broken relationships, and all of us probably if we search far enough into our relationships with one another, will come across at least one or two or three broken relationships. We said that broken relationships can hinder our relationship with God. If we have a problem or grievance with a friend, we should resolve the problem as soon as possible. We are hypocrites, we said, that if we claim to love God, but while at the same time hating others, our attitudes toward others reflect our relationship with God. 1 John 4, if someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person, the scripture says, is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. Last week we focused on two verses, three verses. I have to learn to count. In Minnesota, we just are concerned about color. We don't, we don't learn to count. Last week we focused on Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If another believer sins against you, go in privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, confesses it you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. And as we studied that last week, we compared an Old Testament verse, Leviticus 19.17. And just as a review, uh, Leviticus 19.17 says, Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. And we suggested last week that for Israel, all of Israel, not just blood brothers, but of all of Israel, considered themselves a family. So we're talking about all the believers. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for your sins. And we looked at several translations that said, do not nurse hatred, do not secretly hate, don't hold grudges. And this week, as we're down to the wire and preparing for our sacred assembly, this week, um, I want to focus on the subject of brokenness. I became my illustration of brokenness on Thursday morning, and Terry knows where I'm going. As she smiles, I wasn't. I had been working on my sermon all week long, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and um, I came to the office Thursday morning, opened my computer, and the sermon I'd been working on was gone. And I thought I would go out and eat worms. Um, wasn't exactly how you wanted to start today. I decided I'd take a short, uh, a short walk 
over to 10 Ralston where we live and tell my wife so she could feel sorry for this poor boy. <laughs> and I came back to the office and Terry and I looked at the computer and we found it. Let's have communion now. <laughs> Brokenness. Not broken like a toy that we throw into the garbage or sell at a garage sale because it doesn't work anymore. Not broken like a marriage relationship that ends in divorce. Not broken like a bone. But Psalm 51:17 says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. The NIV calls it broken and contrite. The New Living Translation, which I use, calls it broken and repentant. Broken, contrite, repentant. They're going to the party that's starting early. <laughs> the definition of the, the word in the Hebrew is a feeling or a feeling or expressing remorse or penitence. Synonyms in the English are remorseful, repentant, regretful, sorry, apologetic, rueful. If we use the word in a sentence, it could be Johnny apologize, though it was clear he was hardly contrite. It's in my contention, it's my contention, after 46 years of pastoring churches, the last three in interim, in interim situations, that what is um, increasingly needed in most churches is authentic brokenness. And I've been saying that here since I arrived a little over a year ago. What is increasingly needed in most churches is authentic brokenness, authentic contriteness. We have a lot of Johnnies in our churches who say I'm sorry, though it's clear they are hardly contrite, hardly repentant. If you are a, a parent, you know when your child says I'm sorry, you know when they really are sorry, and when they're sorry they got caught. Well, it's the same thing with us as adults. It's easy to say, well, I'm sorry, but sorry we got caught. Hardly contrite, hardly repentant. The scripture says God desires a broken spirit, a broken and repentant or contrite heart. It's the realization, it's coming to the realization that if I stood in the face of a holy God, which we will one day, we would, as Isaiah say, I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I, love, I live among a people with filthy lips.
in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the Lord calls to Israel, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. In the Old Testament, people commonly express great grief and anguish by tearing their clothes. But God cared that they grieved over their sin in their hearts. Grieving to the point of weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing, but tear your hearts instead. The context of Psalm 51 that we're looking at this morning, if you, if you didn't realize it, is David, King David's confessing of his adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband killed to cover up his sin. And the text for that is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Helps to know that when we read this text, the context of David confessing his sin over the adultery he had with Bathsheba and having his, her husband killed to cover up his sin. So let's look at, with that in mind, let's look at Psalm 51, starting with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts, haunts me day and night. And, and this is important. Against, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Verses 16 and 17 from the message paraphrase, going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship, and here this is powerful. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape 
God's notice. David reminds us in this text that God does not delight so much in the outward signs of repentance, which include making a sacrifice, but that the sacrifice he desires is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant, a contrite heart, a godly grief, heart shattered lives ready for love. The most important thing is the condition of our hearts. Does our repentance look like a heart that has been torn like a garment, broken and contrite as it beats before God? This attitude is missing for most of our repentance. And it's the very thing that God is trying to teach us. Psalm 51.4, against you and you alone have I sinned. We often think of sinning against our brother and sister and having to make reconciliation for that. But David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And I've always found this verse rather interesting because David says nothing about sinning against Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba. Ultimately, he said his sin was against God and God alone. David recognized that and admitted it. He deserved the judgment of God, as do we. Verse 4 in the message says, You're the one I've I've, uh, violated, and you've seen it all, even seen the full extent of my evil. The more that we see God as glorious and holy, the more we see sin as something to weep over from a broken heart, the more glimpses we have of the glory of God, the more we are going to mourn over our sin. It's not real popular to preach that or to teach that, but it's true. Again, Isaiah is our perfect example for that. In Isaiah 6.5, again, he said, Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. And I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. The New Testament book of Luke has an interesting scenario developing in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. One day, uh, Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping onto one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, who is Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets and catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all night and, and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, let's let the nets down again. I think he said it kind of not happy. And this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. And a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Here's what I want us to see. 
When Simon Peter realized what had happened, what did he do? He fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. That's what we're talking about. The people in Nehemiah's day is another example had spent 70 days in Babylonian exile because of their sin. 70 years, excuse me. Um, Their sin and their failure to obey God. Under Nehemiah's leadership, um, God, let me suggest, let me back up a second. In his grace and mercy, God allowed them to return to Jerusalem Under Nehemiah's leadership, they rebuilt the walls. And the text says that on October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their head. And those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. And I love this. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. The Levites stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. I love this because they had broken, repentant, contrite hearts and cried out to the Lord as they were standing there for six hours. Six hours of repentance and brokenness and sorrow and contriteness and repentance. A New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this. He says, I'm not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know it was painful for you to, for a little while. That severe letter refers to a third letter uh, that was lost. You know there's 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, but Paul had a third Corinthians, and that's what he's referring to, um, that he had written to the Corinthians. Apparently it had caused the people to begin to change. And he, Paul goes on to say, Now I am glad I sent it, not because it, because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. And here the important section. It was the kind of sorrow that God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Timothy Keller, many of you like uh, things that he says and what he writes, and he seems to have a handle on a lot of things. He said, legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules. While real remorse says, I broke God's heart. I think the church, 
I'm not just referring to Grace Chapel, but the church overall, is many times more concerned that they broke God's rules. But they aren't as concerned of the fact that they broke God's heart. And I think we as individuals are sometimes more concerned that we broke the rules. But we're not as concerned as that we broke God's heart. The message paraphrase says, I know I distressed you greatly with my letter. Although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel all, at all bad now that I see how it turned out. The letter upsets you, but only for a little while. Now I'm glad. Now that you were upset, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you away from him. The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on a deathbed of regrets. Well, next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, we're going to have a sacred assembly. There are going to be individuals that will stand before you um, that are going to read letters of confession and remorse and contriteness from various aspects of the corporate ministry of the church. There's going to be an opportunity for congregational response where you will be invited to come and tell us what God has been speaking to you about. And the eighth letter, the letter that we believe that Jesus would write to Grace Chapel will be read and responded to. This is an opportunity for us individually and corporately to be broken before one another, but more important that we are broken before God. It's not going through the hoops. It's not crossing another thing off that we do. It's coming as Isaiah before a holy God and repenting. I want you to before we take communion, I want you to watch this video that's just another reciting of Psalm 51, but I think it's important for us to let it sink in before we celebrate the Lord's Supper.